before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of This Week in Doom. Now, the world around us is filled with all kinds of doom. I reckon we could do Today in Doom or This Month in Doom, but we're going to stick to This Week in Doom. And joining me, as always, because it wouldn't be This Week in Doom without him, is everybody's favourite green chicken, Doomberg. Hi, mate. How are you? Grant, I'm doing great. And uh, we were joking before we hit the record button that um, the business of doom is booming, unfortunately. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, yeah. been, it's been yeah. really remarkable. Hey, before you know, we dive in, I, I must ask, because um, it's always a different answer, which I admire about you, but would horrify me. Uh, where in the world uh, do you find yourself uh, today? I, well, I find myself in Italy for my daughter's wedding. So it's, uh, it's all very exciting. We've had fun and games in the lead up to it, as I'm sure everybody that's married a daughter off at some point has had. But um, yes, this weekend, my, my eldest daughter will be getting spliced. I should be giving her away. Um, many times I've tried. Hopefully this time will be successful and we will, <laughs> we'll see how we go. So yes, I'm in the wilds of Italy. Well, first of all, congratulations. And second of all, um, the audience should realize the dedication that you have as a content creator to take time out of this of all weeks to lay down a This Week in Doom, um, truly, truly commendable stuff. <laughs> Well, have have you ever been even on the periphery of the organization of a wedding? Uh, aside from my own. I would talk to you, uh, yeah, I would yeah. talk to the Jehovah's Witnesses, <laughs> I would talk to just about anybody, frankly, to give me an hour's peace and quiet. Ah, now that's all making sense. I get it. Yeah, wonderful. It's all making a lot more sense. Anyway, mate, there is so much to talk about. Um, and I've been sitting kind of reading the news while I've been... Uh, nodding at the appropriate times during conversations about, you know, place card holders and doormats and God knows what, um, and and itching to uh, to have this conversation with you because, um, you know, I, I honestly don't know where to start. I think I think the sensible place to start uh, is your recent piece, The Battle for the Yen, which um, which is something that I've been looking at as well. And so it was, uh, it's always a treat to read your pieces when I'm thinking about the same things myself. So what was it that... that took you to that and let's talk about what you wrote and kick it around a little bit yeah that piece was a synthesis of your thinking and brett johnson's thinking over at santiago capital and of course our our friend um luke roman who put out a really thoughtful analysis in his um september 9th edition of force for the trees and you know as you described in your letter excellent letter um karma police you know this is the ultimate widowmaker's trade and i think the fact that it has that reputation uh, plays into the hands of the of the Bank of Japan, yeah, and um, and so um, very uh, historic event happened um, a week ago from the time that we are recording this, which is you know the yen continued its truly historic weakening, and um, and the Bank of Japan intervened, you know, the, uh, in the market to try to weaken the yen, and and it kind of drew a line in the sand at uh, 145 and. When uh, when the intervention happened, uh, I think the yen was trading at 146, and it got as low as near uh, 140. But now, as as we record this, it's right back at 145 again. And um, one wonders whether this um, is, in fact, you know, um, as we point out in the piece, you know, the Battle of Guadalcanal was the opening story for this piece, and the, the Japanese in, in 1942 knew that if they lost this land war. Um, it would be sort of catastrophic. And, um, and so they threw everything they had at it and, and U.S. ultimately prevailed in a battle of attrition while one wonders whether the international investors who, who have uh, been betting against the end, as you say in your piece, for the better part of a couple of decades here, um, whether they can outlast uh, the Bank of Japan in this ultimate battle of attrition in the investor world, or will this just be yet another example of... Um, a high casualty event <laughs> for the people that are re- trying to re- trying to retake Henderson Field, and uh, so yeah, and I know this is a, a topic that's near and dear to your heart based on your time in Japan. So curious to get your views as well. 
Yeah, I think that that Guadalcanal was the perfect metaphor. You know, what 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 I find fascinating about this is that the the Bank of Japan have now decided to step in and do to the yen what they've tried to do to the JGB market. You know, they've ultimately drawn a line in the sand there and said, okay, here's here's where the ten year is going to trade, basically at zero, and we're bid there for an unlimited amount, and it worked great for a while, um, but the market gets a whiff of some weakness. And the market sees the yen weakening, and they start to, you know, prod away at the at the JGB market, knowing that once again the Bank of Japan is in a very perilous position there. Um, and now here we are again; we're doing the same with a different instrument. Uh, they may have some success, but it's interesting to see how quickly, as you as you point out, the the, the yen is testing that one forty five barrier again. You know, the markets the markets smell blood in the water, and I think yeah. people understand now. Um, as I pointed out in the piece, that if, if you are going to defend that peg on the 10-year JGB, then it's the currency that's going to suffer. It's going to have to. And so we've seen that now. We've seen the currency suffer. So now they're, they're trying to put fires out on two different fronts. And I, I think this is, a, this is a real watershed moment for the Bank of Japan in particular, but, but markets and central banks in general. You know, the, the, I've made this point before, the last time a central bank Really got punched in the face was was the was the Bank of England back in ninety uh, two with the ERM crisis, and everybody talks about you know when Soros broke the pound, but you know what happened is the the Bank of England said here's what's going to happen, uh, and initially markets played along like they like they always have done, and then someone smelled blood in the water and was was big enough to take them on. And the central bank had to capitulate. You know, we've seen the Australian central bank recently capitulate on their peg on the two-year uh, Aussie bond yield, and we saw what happened there. So there is definitely blood in the water, Doomy, and, and central banks are, for the first time in, in as you pointed out, a couple of decades, uh, facing a, a really critical point in time where the markets are refusing to just come to heel. So what we're about to see, I suspect, could absolutely redefine the relationship between central banks and markets. And, you know, it's interesting and not coincidental, I would say, that we are seeing all kinds of headlines and chatter about reviews of central banks and their independence and all this kind of stuff because the next phase of this, unfortunately, is that the central banks are going to have to stop being, quote, unquote, independent and be brought inside the tent because they're going to be forced to do things that, as an independent entity, they, they wouldn't countenance. So, um, you know, prior to the COVID um, interventions, the, we would have said many things are impossible. We would have said that uh, the price of oil can't possibly go negative and, you know, the, pr- the price of used cars can't pricely exceed that of the price of new cars. And, and, um, and to borrow a phrase from Luke Roman, you know, central bankers can't ride two horses with one ass. <laughs> and um, we're going to get a test yes. of that yes. hypothesis uh, in Japan, like in real time. We have a number, we have a chart, we have a scorecard, and we all get to watch, which is why we wrote the piece, um, basically to highlight that um, we didn't quote, I love that quote from Luke, and so we didn't use it in our piece, but um, you either can control the currency or you can control yields, or, 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 but you can't do both. We think. <laughs> of course, we thought, Oil couldn't go negative, and, and well, look, look, you know, maybe so. you can for a time, right? Maybe yeah. maybe you can do both for a time, right? As the as the Bank of Japan have proven, they 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 did whether they were actively controlling them, or well, the market just wasn't interested enough to challenge them. But it, it all looked fine for a little while. But Luke and you are absolutely right. You, you you cannot do that indefinitely because you show a little bit of weakness and. You know, traders, investors realize there is an awful lot of money to be made if you can bust a currency or a bond market. An awful lot of money. And again, is this you know just another Guadalcanal um, where you know <laughs> who knows? It's, it's going to be very very fascinating. And and I think um, the stronger the U.S. dollar gets, and and the longer this energy crisis uh, rolls on, the more blood there's going to be in the water. Yeah, I mean, both of those feed into this and, and they just complicate the problems facing the Bank of Japan. But, you know, this, this, we should, at this point, we should mention the other currency that's getting absolutely battered. And that's, that is, going back to what happened in 92, that's the pound again. You know, Liz Truss has, has come in and, and her new Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng has, has come out with this, you know, I, I think they didn't call it a mini budget. They called it a financial something or other. They came up with some piece of nonsense to, to avoid calling it a budget, but it was a budget. 
And um, the response from currency markets has been to send the pound to four-decade lows against the dollar, against the euro. Um, in fact, I saw an article saying that, that the pound had, was lower against every single currency from A to Z, um, which is remarkable, you know, for a country like the UK and a currency like sterling to be that weak. Um, but if you look at why it's that weak, it's, it's really interesting. It's not like the government are doing anything different. They're just maybe a point where if they overstep that mark in how much they rely on these same things like tax cuts and stimulus and all the kind of things that every central bank in the West has been doing, there comes a point where the market just says, no, you know, the numbers don't add up. Um, and it looks like the UK is at that point. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see what happens there uh, because it, it, you, you think it's a relative game um, and it may be people are turning on sterling and they'll move into the euro and the dollar will strengthen. But that, that move by the Bank of Japan is the first sniffings to me of a new plaza accord being forced onto people because the dollar is, to your point and to Brent's point, um, getting way, way too strong for everybody's comfort. So um, I have a slightly different interpretation of what you just said, which I think you might find interesting, which is um, they haven't done anything different, which I agree. But the market might be internalizing that since they haven't, they can't. Like what different could they do? Um, what, what, as you say, like um, that nothing new and creative is coming out of the Bank of England means that in fact the gig might be up. The jig might be up. I'm sorry, <laughs> and the gig of certain politicians might be up as well. Um, and and as the market realizes, yeah. you know, I mean, ultimately at its core, central bank central bank prowess is nothing more than a giant confidence game, as you've had many guests um, um, articulate on on your various podcasts. And and they are sort of just using the same old tricks, and they're just not working anymore. Um, so then the question becomes, what truly new and innovative could they do? And I think, back to your point about Plaza Court or some kind of a sort of coordinated reconfiguration of the rules of the game midstream, um, it, it, it seems to be inevitable. And, and how to model that would be very difficult. Um, but yeah, like the, the I, I'm looking at the chart of the three-day chart, tick chart of the, of the British pound and it, it bottomed out at 104. Um, somebody must have blown up somewhere on that, that fateful crash. Um, on the 26th, on, on Sunday, Monday. Um, and, and it's truly unprecedented times. And if the market stops believing you, and for the British in particular, as Luke has pointed out, since they can't settle their energy needs and domestic currency, um, how are they going to, you know, what, what are the interest rates going to look like? And then this, obviously, since everything's interconnected, um, and the yen and, and the British, who's going to buy U.S. treasuries? And how is the U.S. going to fund it's uh, massive deficits, which are only growing as the recession that appears to be upon us, however one wants to define it, um, shrinks tax receipts. Um, you sort of get that doom loop uh, that we believe and you believe, and I think Luke believes as well, would trigger sort of a, uh, a new Plaza Accord type scenario. Yeah, it, as you say, I mean, you're quite right to point out that they're, they're doing the same thing, and so what else can they do? But the reality of it is it's interesting that, that now that matters, because they've done the same thing for two decades. Right. Every time there's a problem, we lower rates and then we step into QE um, and then we try and walk it back and we can't, so we carry on doing it. And then there's another, you know, this is why this whole idea of the pivot is has been so focal in everybody's mind and why the markets are suddenly becoming very unstable because they're starting to perhaps realise that the one thing that may not happen again that has always happened so far is the pivot. You know, the markets have been relying on that. Um, so to see the Bank of England, as you say, do the same old tired trick again and it suddenly not work is very, very interesting because you you have to ask yourself, why is it not working anymore? And, and it does come back to that that uh, that, that um, idea of confidence. You know, I mean, Jim Grant's talked about this for the longest point in time. You know, he's, he has this great line that um, the price of gold is the inverse of confidence in central banks, uh, which I think is... Is, will ultimately be proven so true, it begs the question as to why gold, given all the turmoil in the currency markets, hasn't performed. Um, there, there's a lot of speculation that central banks, including Japan, have been selling gold uh, in order to defend their currencies, which would make sense. I think that's, that's why a lot of them use it. Um, but there is clearly something 
shifting here in the mm-hmm. in the dynamic between markets and central banks. Uh, Japan is is in the vanguard of it. It's definitely the canary in the coal mine. And it's something we need to watch very, very carefully because the, the, the currency and bond markets, if they go, they're the only things that matter. The equity market won't make any difference, frankly. So, so I was on a Twitter spaces with um, Alfonso from MacroAlf, who's a, a great content creator. And um, he had a very interesting point, which really resonated with me, which is his mental model for the Bank of Japan and the Bank of England is that of an emerging market that has U.S. dollar-denominated debts that can't print away in local currency. And such an exogenic shock um, leads to the standard outcomes that we're all familiar with, which is you know um, hyperinflation, default, um, uh, all those types of scenarios. Um, and in his view, the energy crisis for these um, for these economies that cannot settle their energy needs uh, in local currency is, is very analogous to such a situation. And I would add with one critical exception, which is these banks have never had to confront such a situation before and they have no idea how to handle it. <laughs> and the populations don't think of themselves as, you know, uh, uh, on par with Argentina. Um, and, and the population of Argentina is used to such events because they've happened countless times in recent memory. Whereas yeah. in England, yeah. England fancies itself a you know Western world, civilized world, where the where the sterling, where the pound sterling, you know, um, and and the quicker you realize what your problem is, of course, the more likely you are to um, to implement better solutions. But um, the the path that Liz Truss has taken, um, which some parts of it we agree with, which is a focus on supply of energy, as as again our friend Luke has been pounding the table on. Um, is is sort of a, a, a developed world where not an emerging economy suite of tools when in reality um, since they can't um, they can't settle their energy needs in their domestic currency um, this is the functional equivalent of having US dollar denominated debts that you you can't afford to pay back um, and that's a real powerful analogy that I'm sure listeners will find some holes in it but um, made a lot of sense to me when I heard it well, look, the other thing to remember is that the UK was bailed out by the IMF in 1976. It's not that long ago, right? It was three years before Thatcher came to power and you had this this massive upswing in, in the UK's economic fortunes, but, but <laughs> we were a third world power before that, more or less. You know, when you had the IMF there with a checkbook, that's, that's not a good sign. This idea that the UK is this global powerhouse... Um, is great if you're English, but but the reality of it is is potentially very far from the truth. And you know, the other thing to me that's worth talking about is I'm here in Italy, um, and this past weekend, obviously, the the the, the right alliance uh, won decisively at the polls here in Italy. Um, and it's interesting, you know, I, the, the you read everywhere in the newspapers about the far right alliance um, and this idea of the far right. I, I find very interesting, you know, because when I look at some of the people and some of the parties that are being labelled far right, you know, it, it appears to me as I, as I look at the, the political spectrum that the left has moved much further to the left. And so it, 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 it I guess, necessarily drags the right with it. And so on the same scale, what's far right is where you know, mildly right of centre right used to be. And so this idea that, that the that the fascists are in control in, in Italy is an interesting one to me. You know, I've, I've listened to Maloney speak and I've, and I've seen her talk about the Italian identity, you know. Uh, we, you know we, we're going we're gonna to protect the Italians' rights to, to be a family and a, and a mother and a woman and a, and, a, and a God-fearing citizen and all these things that used to be, um, you know, used to be called conservative but they're now called far right, which I find I find very very interesting. And and I look at Brussels, and I look at the challenges that they're potentially facing in, in keeping the whole of Europe together. And you know, we had a, had a great conversation with Stephen Wilkinson, and he, and he unfortunately uh, was cut off that that conversation we had with Marco and Luke recently in the Twitter Spaces um, about Germany and Europe staying together. And challenges like the Italian election are. Really, not going to help. So you, you've you've got the you've got the currency markets, you've got the energy crisis, and now you're starting to see the results of policies that have kind of disgruntled millions of Europeans. Um, 
starting to be reflected in the polling booths. So again, you know, it's another potential catalyst that the ECB is going to struggle to to keep under control. You know, everywhere you look, you, you see these little fires popping up. Yeah, and um, I'm sure maybe you've seen it, although I know that you've been <laughs> globetrotting the last couple of weeks. Preoccupied this, is the word you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, um, this, this two-minute and change snippet of a speech that she gave um, that has gone viral uh, on Twitter, um, where she, she basically... She obviously, I don't know, I don't speak Italian, but reading the subtitles and, and listening to the manner in which she speaks, she's obviously a very charismatic politician. And um, she's expressing views that um, many uh, in the, the sort of the, the West would consider to be um, somehow out of bounds today that, as you say, weren't out of bounds 5, 10, or, or 20 years ago. Um, but here's the sort of a temperature of the room for you. I'm, I'm obviously... Um, in several Slack rooms and in one room that I'm in, and I won't name it, but um, when somebody shared that video in the room, um, a friend of ours said immediately, I hope she has good security. Um, and what a sad uh, condemnation of, of the political environment that we're in today, that um, the first place many people who have become skeptical about the current slate of leaders would go is to assume that um, she won't be on the stage for long. Now, of course, um, Let's hope and, and pray that that's not true and that it was just sort of a joke. But um, it, it did sort of capture what was on everybody's mind in the room, which is um, she represents uh, an in-your-face attack on the, on the, uh, on the status quo. And uh, we shall see. Uh, and, and by the way, um, the, the president of the EU didn't help the situation by flippantly saying in the days before the election that uh, if Italy votes wrong... The EU um, has tools, I believe was the word that she used. Has tools, yeah. 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 And, um, and uh, by the way, uh, one of those two uh, women um, has, has been elected to their position. And, and the one that was not elected but appointed to her position is talking about protecting democracy. I mean, what a perversion of words. Um, when, you re, when you rewrite what words mean, <laughs> they, they cease to have meaning, right? Uh, literally. Um, and so, um, uh, as a sort of, again, I, one of the things that we always like to say, and, and we, we had our doom, doom zoom, you know, our pro tier doom zoom last week when we were talking about energy and a global assessment of the energy markets, um, we try not to be political, but one needs to be politically aware as one considers the investment landscape and, um, trying to be as neutral as you can, but observing the, um, the seductive nature of populism which I would suggest the new uh, leader of Italy uh, is sort of the perfect uh, metaphor for in this environment, um, is, is, is a risk uh, that we've been warning about for some time. Like we have been warning that because Europe is getting its energy policy wrong, um, the electorate will take a, a hard turn to the right and you might not like that. And the path function might not be ideal. And, and it's, it's, it's um, fascinating to watch. Again, as somebody who tries to be apolitical but politically aware, um, this, that, that the fact that um, uh, the president of the EU, I, I, I know her first name, I'm forgetting her last name, is escaping now, Ursula, Ursula von, 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 von der Leyen. Yes, the fact that she thinks that she's the one with the leverage in this situation is baffling to me. Well, the, look, you, you, what you said is right. I think, it was, was it, I think it was Socrates who said the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. And it's so true. And, and your point is, is right on, as always, right? I mean, it, it, the, the idea that you can redefine what things mean to suit a political narrative is incredibly dangerous, but it's worked remarkably well over the last couple of decades. Um, and you're starting to see that unwound. But the way it's being couched is that this is some kind of new frontier and some new threat when what it is is actually just a pendulum swinging back in the other direction towards ideas and concepts on a national basis that, that existed before the EU. And if you decide that being a proud Italian or a proud German or a proud Brit is, is somehow wrong because now you should be a proud European is to obviously obviate centuries of history. And, it, and it's just a really dangerous thing. You know, what, what, what they should be doing is, is listening to, to proud Italians and proud Germans and proud Hungarians and proud Poles and listening to, to what it is that identifies that they identify with in their country, their nationality, their history, 
and try to fold that somehow into the European ideal rather than say, okay, we're going to impose this on you. We're Brussels. As you say, we're not elected, but we're going to start deciding what's what here. And the tools they're using to kind of try and marginalise all these politicians that, that, that think on a, on a country basis rather than a European basis, I think, A, they're very dangerous, but B, they've always been likely to and are now starting to blow up in their face. So if you watch that two-minute video of her speaking um, and you sort of get caught up in it, right, um, which, she, again, uh, all effective communicators have this ability to to wrap the audience into what they're saying and the passion with which she expresses it. And then you put in her name on Google or you Google Italian election. The headlines that you see are fascist and hard right. Like every single publication in the Western world uses either the words fascist or hard right. And I would argue, again, trying to observe this um, as a political watcher, that um, when you juxtapose her popularity with those words, those words do more damage to the publications putting them forward than to the politician they think that they are trying to put into a box. Um, and so, again, like the central bankers, how often can these, these tricks work? And look, I'm sure you could find something that she said in the past that uh, even we would find is offensive and, and in no way are we sort of endorsing the person or all of her platform or everything she's ever said, we're making a relatively apolitical observation about the current environment. Um, and you can, you watch that speech and then you Google Italian election and you see two radically different wor- worlds. And then you have to ask yourself, which one is closer to reality? Um, and, um, and so it, it is truly, a, I think, again, the analogy of, of the confidence game of the sort of establishment, the, the, European Union versus the, the countries and the central bankers versus economic reality. Um, we seem to be having sort of a convergence of confidence crisis across all dimensions here. Well, I mean, look, I think that's because the reality uh, is trying to impose itself. And the reality is, let's face it, all these countries are broke. That's the reality. The reality is these central banks have, have fostered policies that amplify the poor finance of all these countries, that's reality. The reality is that a lot of these countries who are swinging to towards the right have to feel let down by the policies that, that these liberal democracies have, have imposed and have taken them to this point where inflation's double digits and the cost of living's gone up. You know, this is the reality. The reality is things are cyclical and, and we do go back in the other direction. It happens from time to time. Um, it doesn't mean that's a bad thing. It means you've 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 pushed things too far uh, along whatever agenda it is you, you've been trying. I mean, you know, it, it, this is the reality, and I, and I hate the way this is is kind of forgotten and brushed under the carpet when they, when we talk about the things we're fighting against. You're fighting against the forces of nature, and unfortunately, as I've said many many times in the past, there's only one winner. No, nothing that man or a group of unelected politicians or a group of unelected central bankers can do is powerful enough to override the forces of nature. So you're much better off to understand them, see where they're going and and take whatever steps you can that help smooth that pendulum's journey back in the other direction. Because if you don't smooth it, we end up with violent change. It's happened so many times in the past and the way we're going at the moment it's going to happen again, which, to be honest, genuinely concerns me. And utterly predictable. Look, you can just decide that you're going to redefine that a recession isn't two consecutive quarters of contracting right. GDP right. growth. That doesn't change the underlying economics. You can just decide that inflation means more money in your paycheck at the end of the month, as, as Joe Biden recently said. Um, you, you can just decide, as Justin Trudeau, that he can't find a business case for exporting LNG when Canadian natural gas is trading at $3 per million BTU and... European natural gas is trading at 60. Um, and as we said on Twitter, um, we can think of no one less qualified to judge the uh, viability of a business case than Justin Trudeau. Um, <laughs> you, you can just say that democracy means I, I, as an unelected official, get to decide whether citizens have voted correctly. Um, you can tell yourself that you're redefining those words, but you're not actually redefining their meaning to the average person. Um, and so... 
Um, I, I was recently um, lucky enough to be a guest on uh, our mutual friends, uh, Chris Kiefer's podcast, um, Decouple. And I said, you know, when you're in a bubble, uh, I said something to the effect of when you're in a bubble, you're the last to know that there's a giant needle coming. Um, and, and I would put forward that um, those who are drilled deepest into the bubble, like these people live in a bubble, they, they must live in a world where they, they actually believe what they're saying. You know, if you say a lie enough times to yourself, you begin to believe it. And I've seen this phenomenon at, when I was in the executive world, you know, um, there couldn't be more out of touch people than CEOs um, because what basically happens is over time, um, people are afraid to tell you the truth and you get surrounded by yes people and um, everything you say is great and every decision is right because um, it, it, is, it becomes this sort of um, a Pascal's wager bet for your, your, your uh, direct reports, which is uh, I'm not going to take the chance on bringing this person bad news. And so then over time, um, executives run the risk of becoming totally detached from what's going on on the factory floor. And this has to be what's going on with, with Brussels. Like they probably believe what they're saying. They're so, they're so far out of touch. It's incredible. Yeah, so far out of touch. Well, listen, um, we've, we've, we've touched a great deal on Europe there and, and you've touched a couple of times on European energy. And today, as we're gearing up to record this, um, the European energy story, as bad as it is, has taken another turn. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah, this is the subject of our next piece, which we'll probably publish around the same time, hopefully, that this comes out. But um, a really, we think, historic and catastrophic event has occurred. And uh, I should begin by warning that we're recording this as events are still transpiring. And it's entirely possible uh, or even likely that um, some of the things we'll speculate about in the next few minutes may prove to be untrue, um, may prove to be worse or better. Um, but given the knowledge that we have now on this fast-moving situation, it looks like major damage has been done in an act of sabotage to both Nord Stream 1 um, and Nord Stream 2, which are two critically important arteries. Uh, one, of course, uh, is brand new, Nord Stream 2, and the other has been a uh, bedrock of the European energy strategy for many years, Nord Stream 1. And um, in the piece that we're currently writing, and we'll see if it survives editing, um, we open the piece with the sort of analogy of 9-11. Um, so you remember 9-11, uh, the 17 minutes between when the first plane hit um, the North Tower at the World Trade Center and the second plane hit, uh, for many, many people, 9-11 you know, really began when that second plane hit. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, for the people who were on planes that got hijacked, uh, this obviously began very early for them and for those unfortunate souls. You know, but for the most, most of us, for me, and I'm sure for you, um, when the first plane had hit, but the second one hadn't yet, you, you, there was a lot of confusion and questions and uncertainty. Like, oh, maybe this was a small plane and maybe the pilot got disoriented and maybe it was an accident. But when you saw the second plane crash into the building on live television, as we say in the piece, um, the wave function of probabilities quickly collapsed into uh, a certainty, which is this was a deliberate act. And not only in that moment did you know it was a deliberate act, but you also knew intuitively that the world had changed forever. Um, a very similar set of headlines, obviously not nearly the significance of 9-11, and I'm not meaning to um, diminish 9-11 um, by comparing it to, but yesterday... We saw a headline, which was Nord Stream 2 saw a major pressure, pressure drop and a leak. And there was some fear that the pipeline was damaged. And during the day, a lot of talk on Twitter and amongst um, people in the energy sector that we were communicating with that, well, maybe this was an accident, it's a new pipeline, hasn't been turned on. And then we get the second headline, which is Nord Stream 1 has been seriously damaged as well. And then you knew in the moment, just like you knew when you saw that second plane, this is a deliberate act. This is a really, really important, systemically important event that is unfolding and it will forever change the energy landscape and could and risks, we should say, serious escalation uh, in the sort of hybrid war that we're um, seeing today because if you're going to attack and whoever did it and we don't know who did it and there's all kinds of speculation on Twitter about who was probably behind it, but somebody did it and... That means the people that didn't do it know that they didn't do it, but somebody did it and they have their suspicions, but who knows? 
if critically important energy arteries are fair game, then this runs a very significant risk of escalating quite quickly to beyond just a hybrid war. Um, and, and this, we think, is, is red alert uh, for, for danger, both for just in isolation, if nothing else happens, just the fact that these pipelines look to be substantially damaged and, and who knows if and when they could be repaired. Um, that fact set alone condemns Europe into a much harder set of choices. But the real risk, we think, is, is the next level of escalation of, okay, if, if you're going to blow up these pipelines, we're going to go ahead and do this cyber attack, or we're going to go ahead and pick your favorite response. And then once that next response happens, you know, the gloves come off. And um, very, very significant event in our view. L lots of unfolding headlines, lots of... Um, poorly sourced headlines and, and speculations, but the, the, the fact set as we see it today as we're recording this podcast don't look good. Well, talk, talk a little bit about um, the attack because this is not something that a group of five guys with a grudge can just decide to go out and do. This is, this is a much more complex operation. Yeah, as we, we were sort of exchanging messages before we recorded, you know, the overlap in the Venn diagram of who is capable of doing this and who benefits from it is pretty small. Um, and none of those possibilities makes for a very palatable outcome. Now you're talking about um, an underwater pipeline that is engineered um, to very high standards. And again, these are just headlines, but we, we're seeing a headline that uh, Zero Hedge retweeted saying that um, the second quote explosion was consistent with something like 100 kilograms of dynamite. And um, Javier Blas was an excellent energy uh, analyst over at Bloomberg is is tweeting out pictures of the the sheer size of the of the plume of methane that came up, and um, there's some talk about this being sort of a kilometer uh, in in diameter, which would mean that the damage to the pipeline is is huge. And and I've been um, desperately exchanging messages with a friend of mine who is overseas working on a deep sea project as we speak and is a long industry veteran uh, uh, in the oil and gas sector working in this space. And, you know, he said like in an ideal world um, where you don't have conflict and it's not winter and all this other stuff, you might expect 20 to 25 weeks worth of lead time for some of the key repair um, materials that you would need and the equipment. And, and, and so at a minimum, this shuts off a major artery for Europe for this winter. But again, that is the sort of best case scenario in our view. The worst case scenario is um, this is a dangerous escalation by somebody and uh, we're not near enough to the, to the situation to know who or to speculate on who. There's all kinds of it on Twitter and we won't indulge in that. But um, if it gets reciprocated, um, A to B to C to Z goes very quickly. Yeah. And, um, and you get right through the whole alphabet of response and counter response. Um, and so this is a very big deal. Uh, we view this as um, a far bigger deal than the press is currently giving it, um, but we're early days still. Yeah, it's interesting. When you talk about that, that Venn diagram, you're right. It's a very small overlap, but, but when you talk about who could have done it and who benefits, um, this is all at nation-state level, right? This is, this is, not, this is not like <laughs> yeah. German, German energy consumers benefit or don't benefit this is this is way way bigger than that yeah it's 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 truly well just i mean we can we can begin by uh cataloging who doesn't benefit um, europe does not benefit germany the entire european energy market by extension the uk of course and then japan don't benefit either because they're all going to be bidding for that incremental carrier yeah. uh, of lng and as a mutual friend said to us, you know, what's going to happen next? A, a carrier filled with U.S. gas uh, is going to bump into an iceberg. You know, like um, right. this is this this has is a very, you know, they have that old um, the the doomsday clock. Um, I I would say that this yep. event has pushed that clock closer to midnight, um, closer than, to midnight. than when we woke up yesterday. And um, when we saw the second headline, our stomach sank. Yeah. Um, uh, because it, uh, it confirmed just like, I remember what I remember it like it was yesterday watching on the today show when, you know, Katie Couric was trying to describe what she had just seen, um, as the second plane crashed into the towers. And you just knew in that moment, like the wave function has collapsed and this is a deliberate event 
and the world as I've known it for all the years I had been alive prior to that moment is fundamentally changed. Now, again, this is not, nothing will be at that level, but this is a significant event. And when we saw the second headline, we realized immediately that this was a deliberate event and there's no hiding it. Um, it has to be dealt with. And um, it's, it's a major dousing of an accelerant on an already raging hot fire. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good way to put it. But it's funny, you know, if we wrap in both parts of this conversation, you realize that, that everywhere you look, everything is born out of desperation, right? It, it, there is desperation everywhere. There's desperation in the hearts of central bankers. There's desperation in the hearts of markets in many places. There's desperation in the hearts of politicians. There's, desperate, there's desperation in the, in the hearts of, of people who've crossed borders and are, are, are desperately looking for a win. There's desperation in the people defending those borders. Wherever you look, we see desperation. And, and the, the simple fact is we do live in desperate times. And that's why we're starting to see all these crazy outcomes and crazy things that, that we haven't seen in the last 30 years because everyone was getting more prosperous. And that stopped. You know, that has stopped. That, that idea that um, every year we're going to get quote-unquote wealthier and every generation is going to do better than its parents, we're at the end of that now for the time being. We are going to go into reverse for a little period of time. And, and I think all the things we're seeing, uh, the smack of desperation, are the clearest indication of that. And so the sooner we, we realise that and address the fact that you cannot just continue to push and the desperation goes away and we get back to the way things are going. The sooner we realize that standards of living have to drop and the piper has to be paid and the debt has to be written off. Once we realize that and everybody involved and every um, party that I've named there is going to kick and scream against that because it's against their own self-interest, but it's going to happen one way or the other, whether they like it or not, I'm afraid. Yeah, so you know, we characterize this as um, our first assessment of the macroeconomic landscape is: Are we in a period of excess primary energy or shortage? And when you're in a period of shortage, you have these desperate acts. And as we're talking, um, two headlines just crossed my Bloomberg in order. One, Denmark assesses that Nord Stream gas leaks were caused by a deliberate act and could not have been a result of accidents. And immediately under that is. German economy minister Habeck, quote, speculations about the reason for Nord Stream 1 leak are currently forbidden. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> like you can't make it up, right? And so when you are in a period of energy shortage, as you say, the price of physics must be paid and um, reality must be dealt with. When you're in a period of relative energy abundance, you can get away with all kinds of stupid stuff and waste and bad policies and money printing. Because ultimately, energy is the ultimate currency. And since COVID, uh, when the sort of convergence of underinvestment because of ESG and um, a newfound appreciation for cash flow by the shale patch and the damages of the COVID lockdown, uh, we would argue that the world pivoted from relative energy abundance to relative energy, energy poverty. Um, and we are just seeing the, the sort of um, necessary unpredictable, but in a way predictable at the meta level, unpredictable at the, at the event level. Uh, but ultimately, when you squeeze a balloon on one end, it, it pops up somewhere else. And, um, and so those two headlines back to back, that that could be normal <laughs> today. You know, yeah. it, it tells you where we are. It's pretty scary. Well, it's, you know, we, we mentioned Luke Groman earlier on, um, a good friend of us both. And, you know, Luke's made this point for some time now that, that you can say what you like about the US dollar or gold or the yuan or the yen or anything, but the, the only real currency that matters is energy. And the other point he's been making is that we, we may have crossed the line for peak cheap energy. And if that's the case, and I have to say everything I've seen in the last couple of years suggests that he's absolutely right about that. Uh, energy is the basis of society. You know, you've written brilliantly about this in the past. And, and if that cost basis changes, then that negative impact is going to have to come out of standards of living. It's the only way for this to work. And, and I think we're seeing politicians start to realise that and realise that they are not going to want to be doing what they're doing when when this kind of settles in with the public. They're, they're doing what they can to 
kind of hide it by tax breaks and stimulus and all this other stuff, but the reality is there. And, you know, for the longest time, I think a lot of people who've been looking ahead and, and not necessarily concerned about what the market might do tomorrow, but looking at the bigger picture, this is kind of all the things that people have been worried about um, at, at the risk of upsetting you. All those chickens are coming home to roost at once. <laughs> and, and yeah. you know, it, 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 it makes for quite a remarkable tableau to, to be sitting trying to take in every corner of it. So we have a slightly nuanced view on Groman and uh, Groman's argument about um, cheap peak energy and, and others um, have been putting this forward. Uh, we would say, um, without government interference, the rate of technical innovation in the development of energy, primary energy, um, is higher than the annual rate of growth of energy demand. So left unfettered, yeah. we're not believers that um, there's a fundamental issue here about past peak energy that could not be recovered with um, with, the, with the natural market forces of free market capitalism and technology development. But we don't live in that world. And so what looks like peak cheap energy is actually just another manifestation of constraining market forces in the fossil fuel sector um, and the attack of the ESG movement on fossil fuels um, that make the investments necessary to create and develop those technologies less attractive to the incremental investor. So we would argue, and I believe this based on my own personal experience in the commodity sector, that um, you know the peak oil theorists have been wrong for decades, and it's because we have far more resources under the ground than people are willing to admit. And the engineering and technology prowess exists uh, and is certainly capable of being developed to exploit those resources at a rate that is faster than um, the world can effectively use to grow its GDP. And so um, we're not huge believers in peak energy as an inherent issue. We view peak energy um, uh, as sort of a symptom of the underlying disease of the ongoing attack on fossil fuels because that attack doesn't just impact investments, it impacts investments in technology. And if horizontal drilling and fracking has proven anything, is that unexpected technology developments can radically change the game, so much so that the producers in that field waste enormous amounts of money because energy has become so abundant and cheap, and yet they can't stop themselves from investing in it. Um, and so we believe, left to their own devices, the fossil fuel industry would uh, create more than enough energy than we need, and they would lose tons of money doing it. Well, look, there's two points I'd make on that. First of all, I, I, would, I would hammer home Luke's, Luke's distinction about this being peak cheap energy. I think, I think that's a key point he makes. And, and you know, when, when we talk about this, it takes us back to the Italian elections and it takes us back to this demonising of of the far right and this pendulum swinging back because what's happening in the energy sector is exactly the same, right? We've, we've, we've demonised nuclear, we've demonised coal, we've demonised anything that isn't completely green and we've, and we've gone down the road of making anybody who, who thinks differently... Um, Call them far right energy uh, factions, wh whatever you want, but it's the same the same tactics in play here. And there we go. We find ourselves with the pendulum swinging back, back once again, and people needing energy and resorting to firing up coal power plants again because they're they're desperately in need of energy. Um, they've tainted everybody with with terms that they've tried to stick on them and label them with. It's exactly the same. It's exactly the same uh, as we're seeing in in politics. And it's just it's a symptom, unfortunately, of of the broader public debate that we are finding ways to marginalise views that that don't jibe with the, the current flavour du jour. But ultimately, a lot of those views are fundamentally sound in the way they're held. It doesn't necessarily mean they shouldn't be changed or adjusted. But at their very root, and, and I think you put this best, frankly, when you wrote about energy and the people living on the planet today shouldn't be sacrificed for the people living in the future. I think that's the, that's the perfect way to, to sum that up. Um, but we have demonised people. And, and wherever you look, whether it's politics, whether it's energy, whether it's currencies, whether it's central banks, whatever it is, there's this effort 
to demonize uh, anybody who's got a non-consensus view. And it's worked really, really well until you find out that in a lot of those places, the non-consensus view ultimately for the long term was absolutely correct. So how do you walk that back? You don't. Well, and to, to push a point home that we made earlier, they've redefined words, like the word green, like you just said, green enough. Um, is, yeah. solar, is solar truly green? It, it is a temporary, non-recyclable, highly energy intense, low density form of energy that is only relatively cheap today because it relies on access to uh, slave labor and dirty thermal coal in China. How is that green? We've just decided it's green. doesn't mean it's green. Um, we just give it that label. And then anybody who questions whether, what does that word actually mean? Then they just label with the, all the other words that we've talked about. And, and again, just to drive home the previous point I was making, when Luke Roman says peak cheap energy, I'm saying that the cheapness or expense of that energy is dictated by the amount of in technology investments we make. And that is being attacked just as vehemently as the capital investments that are needed to exploit those technologies. And so I, I, I'm strongly pressing home the point that, um, that, that, that the cost of energy, the energy return on energy invested is a function of technology. And the rate of change of human technology is faster than the rate of growth of energy demand in most normal scenarios. And so I do believe if we had, you know, the right sort of leadership instincts and the right investments that we could overcome that. That's all. Well, we will see. Well, listen, there's one thing that is absolutely green, and that's you, my friend. And this has been um, an enormously enjoyable hour, as they always are. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad we got to do this at short notice. We will, we will watch the, the Nord Stream story develop in the next few days because I suspect we're at the beginning of yet another story rather than the end of it. Um, and I'm, I am fascinated to see how this, how this all plays out. Yeah, I have to leave you with some critical advice for this weekend. If you're noticed, you've screwed up. So my advice is <laughs> do whatever it takes to not be noticed at this wedding. <laughs> Listen, that's, that's, that's difficult on two counts. One, I'm giving the bride away. And two, I'm actually officiating the ceremony. So uh, my daughter has wrote me in to more things than I probably am qualified to do. So if I'm not noticed in either of those roles, I've, I've way outperformed <laughs> anything that you think I'm capable of. So. In all, in all seriousness, congratulations, Grant. And, uh, and do Thank your you, best mate. to enjoy the weekend. And uh, <laughs> what, what, I know these situations can be stressful, but uh, kudos for you for um, laying down some time with us today and for putting on another podcast. And uh, looking forward to seeing post-wedding stress, Grant. There you go, mate. It'll be a different beast altogether. <laughs> I will talk to you soon. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Grant. Good luck. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.